and Steve on Arizona Sports Saturday. Arizona Sports, the local sports leader. Happy Saturday, everybody. This is Arizona Sports Saturday. It's your weekend stop for live and local sports talk. I'm Mitch. He's Steve. We got Trevor behind the glass today as well. And today did not start off so well for me, Steve. Really? Not what so happened? Great today. Not so great today. Um, Are you okay? Now, here's what I do want to emphasize for anybody that's immediately freaking out. This is nothing serious. But I missed out on a grand opportunity to be one of the first owners of Book Ones. Oh, the new shoes are out. The new shoes are out and lasted about two minutes on major retail sites. I'm guessing you did Yeah, I'm sick it. on those, too. You guys both tried? I want them, but I didn't try. I got... I, so I set up for notifications. Um, Nike has a separate app that they use for selling the sneakers. Trev, I'm sure you're aware of it. He's not in his yes, head yet. And I get the notification and I get in. And as soon as the little bubble lights up with the price, I'm like, oh, my gosh, this is happening. And then I'm waiting to be able to push the button so I can submit the payment. And I realized that I didn't have my shipping address on my account. And I realized it too late. So after I put my shipping address in, I go back. They were all gone. All the shoes. Oh. All sizes. You did a lot better than me because the internet, the website crashed on me. Really? I buy that. Yeah, I believe that. So I I'm a little jealous of you right now. There's so many people that want the book ones. I mean, Dude, I don't blame cool. them. Every, I want the orange ones. Anytime a signature shoe comes out, and sneakerheads know exactly what I mean by this, but anytime a signature shoe comes out, it's gone like that. Yeah. It, they don't last long. I'm and not a sneaker guy. They hit the secondary market and they're close to like three hundred dollars. I've only bought one pair of shoes in the last like five years, and you can tell that it's time for me to buy new ones. I mean, they are crap. I put it up on the table. Your Sperry's aren't doing it anymore. Yeah, no, they're not. They're not doing it. So I, I want the orange books. Uh, I'm guessing if you can't get your hands on them, there's no way in heck that I am able to do that. But um, yeah, dude, basketball shoes are like a whole other world. These I mean, sne- sneakers themselves are yeah. it's it's a ridic- it's a ridiculously crazy market. It's like uh, like trading card market. Yeah, no, you know? I, I I get exactly what you mean by that. I know people. So you and I have a mutual friend who used to work here a long time ago, Luke Robbins. Yes, and great great dude, love that guy. Uh, he would be flabbergasted that I'm bringing him up right now. But <laughs> I went over to his house one time. This guy has nothing. He has nothing. Except basketball sneakers. That's like the only thing he owns is all the latest sneakers. He's got the new, like he's got the new Yeezys and he's got, he's got all these other basketball shoes. And I'm like, dude, what do you do with all of them? He's like, I don't know. <laughs> Just have them. It's like, a collection. For yeah. People. Like sometimes they'll buy them and not even wear them. Yeah. Well, and he liked to wear them too, but I mean, yeah, sneaker heads are like that. Yeah. That's a crazy. cool thing to be into. I will say uh, they're at all-star weekend right now. Devin Booker is, and he was asked about the shoes and he did mention that Nike told him they sold out really quickly. Yeah. No but kidding. then did tease that there's another one coming soon. Ooh. I'm sure a different color because the color this time around was like the tannish mirage. I think it's called. I'm not going to waste my time. I know everybody's super psyched about the uh, the orange clays. Yeah. That you mentioned. Yeah. Um, I'm probably never going to get them. But yeah, sounds like he's teasing another color coming soon. What that means. I don't know. Let's start with this. Mike Hazen yesterday still looking to add a right fielder, outfielder, right handed bat. Yes. 
I don't have anything to report on that, but yes, we're still there's still players in the market, and we're still Ken has still um, told me to continue to improve the team any way that we can um, within the, the the bounds that we kind of have, and and so we're still out there actively trying to do that. And they certainly were today. First to report, Jeff Passin. Outfielder Randall Gritchick in the Arizona Diamondbacks. One year, $2 million, mutual option for 2025. This year, it's one and a half. And then a $6 million million is the option. $500,000 buyout and performance bonuses. Nick Pecoro of AZ Central went on to say that Gritchick can make another three and a half in bonuses based on plate appearances alone. Low risk, high reward potential for Gritchick. Um, this is obviously somebody who will compliment Jock Peterson at the designated hitter position. And it's not necessarily a nothing fielder. Either. Yeah, he like could he play the outfield. Yes. He could be the kind of guy that, let's say you give Alec Thomas a day off, you could slide Corbin Carroll to center field and Gritchick could play right um, or something like that, or give Gurriel a day off, he could play left, I think. So, yeah, this this person, this particular player makes a lot of sense. We talked about it last week. There were three names. Uh, remind me. It was Gritchick. Duvall. Duvall. Adam Duvall. Tommy Pham. And Tommy Pham. Pham didn't make the most sense because of the incident between him and Jock Peterson, and we're not really sure if you want to bring that into your clubhouse. Right. Um, and but Duvall was probably looking for a full-time job. Probably. And Gritchick, al- although he is so good against left-handers, he hit three twenty eight. That's his average against lefties last year. And he had an OPS of almost a thousand, yeah, against lefties last year specifically, and so because he was so good at just that, and that's what they're going to ask him to do in this lineup, it made all the sense in the world. Plus, he's got a huge gap between what he's good at against lefties and what he's not so good at, which is hitting righties. That I didn't think he'd be able to convince another team to make him a full time outfielder. So he seemed more likely to me to accept a lesser role than an Adam Duvall or a Tommy Pham. I'm trying to pull up his numbers to see how balanced he is home versus road. And I got to be honest, just looking at it now, it's pretty evenly split. Yeah. And I only bring that up, as as you know, because as a member of the Colorado Rockies last year, there is, well, there's a bias, but there's also the knowledge that it is a the highest elevation ballpark in Major League Baseball. The air is thinner. The ball travels a little bit quicker. Absolutely. And the dimensions of that ballpark are a little bit steeper than most, right? And he was better at home, but not by much. Not by I mean, 60 hits at home, 56 on the road, 28 extra base hits at home, 21 extra base hits on the road, 270 average at home, 264 on the road, slugging 486 at home, 429 on the road. Like, this is a, as balanced a player as you could possibly find. Now, one thing that kind of bites into these numbers a bit was he got traded during the season and became a member of the Angels. The fact that he was able to maintain this level numbers-wise, it wasn't great for him in the second half no, with the Angels. the second half was not good. But the maintaining of those numbers is pleasant to see. But we all understand that he's probably here primarily for one reason— is because he can hit the crap out of the ball when it comes to facing a left-handed pitcher. Yeah, and I don't want to compare him to this guy, but I will bring up the context of the last time the Diamondbacks tried to sign a guy specifically for this role. You remember when they brought in Jordan Luplo <laughs> to be a right-handed bat against lefties? That's one of our co favorite Diamondbacks ever. No, I, I get it. It did not go well. 
They brought that guy in because of how well he crushed lefties in Cleveland specifically, and I, yep. I think Tampa maybe as well. Um, but that didn't work out for them. Randall Grichik has a little bit more of a track record, had a lot more success last season against lefties than Luplo ever did. Um, so hopefully it goes a lot better. Here's than what that. I think the biggest difference is between the Luplo example and this with Grichik. Grichik can also hit right-handed pitching. Outside of Luplo being used specifically as a guy to just come in and spell a left-handed batter against a lefty pitcher, Jordan really struggled on the other side of the plate or facing the other hand when it came to a pitcher. Randall Grichik was like a regular starter for the Colorado Rockies for most of the last couple of years that he's been there. So he's hitting right-handed and left-handed pitching. And like I said, it's pretty balanced from both sides of the plate. And there's a stark increase against lefties. Yeah, and the hard part now for Tori Lovello is finding opportunities for Grichik to play against more than just left-handed pitching. Mm -hmm. Because even last year, looking at Grichik and the role that he had, he had about a little over 400 at-bats last season in total. 122 of them against lefties, where he dominated. So, yeah, the statistics are great. He's great against lefties, but when you add up all the numbers, it's only 100 at-bats or so. 122. And so he's still got over 300 against righties. So even though he dominates left-handed pitching, 75% of his playing time was still against righties, if you want to look at it that way, right? where he was a below-average hitter. I'm, I'm just speaking statistically. This isn't my opinion. He hit 244 against righties. He hit 328 against lefties. That's a significant difference. That's a, what by my rough estimate, that's like 80-point difference. I think it's also easier to have higher numbers when you have less opportunities. Smaller sample right. size. You, cre- you create the illusion that you're really, really good at something because you've done it less, but you were more successful in the fewer attempts that you had, right? But that goes across all of baseball. 75% of the arms, roughly speaking, are righties. The other 25% are left-handed. Especially when you look at the NL West. And then starting s- rotations. And, yeah, exactly. And then starting-wise, it's maybe about 20% to 80 if you're yeah. just taking your average five-man rotation. So Jock Peterson is going to play, and we talked about this when they signed Jock. My estimation is it, he'll start north of 100 games, probably right. 110, 115 in that range. That's the hope. So if you're looking at Randall Grichik as a starting player at DH against lefties, lefty starting pitchers, that may only be 40 to 50 games. Right. And so I don't but think to his, your point, he could spell somebody a day. Oh, sure. In the outfield. Absolutely. Against a righty. And then that opens up this conversation. Now that you've got Guriel, Carroll, and Thomas as your starting three in the outfield, I assume that's their primary starting outfield. Jock Peterson is, for all intents and purposes, your starting DH. That's four. Add Grichik now. Five. And then the only other outfielder that I assumed would make opening day roster is Jake McCarthy. He still can. Six outfielders is a lot, uh, especially when two of them are only playing DH, you would think. I mean, Grichik, again, can play the outfield. Peterson could, but I doubt it. Um, I'd like to have Jake McCarthy on this roster because he can play all three outfield positions. He can play center field if he needs to. Uh, He could play either of the corners. He's a great speedster off the bench. But is he going to get much better is he going to develop if he's not playing all that much? I mean, the real bummer for Jake is that he wasn't healthy for the playoffs. When he went out, it was very early in that Brewers series, that wild card series. He wasn't eligible to make the roster. Something came up that kept him out the entire postseason. And it was a detriment to Jake because they had an outfield of Guriel, Thomas, and Carroll almost every single day. 
And it very much worked to the Diamondbacks' benefit, not only offensively, but defensively. So to your point about maybe they won't need McCarthy as much, I still wonder if they can find space for him on the bench as a guy that can really, really run and play defense. So say you have Gurriel out there and you want to spell in the last couple of innings of a blowout, then you could put McCarthy in. That just doesn't leave a lot of room for growth. Right. You know what I mean? Because to your point about the postseason with him not playing, while he was not playing, Alec Thomas was going out there and building confidence. Mm -hmm. And Gabby Moreno was becoming a middle-of-the-order bat. And all these other young guys, I mean, even Corbin Carroll getting his first postseason experience, those guys were building up confidence as they move forward. Jake just hasn't been given that opportunity yet. And I wonder now, with Grichik being added to the fold and Peterson being added to the fold, if you carry six outfielders, what is Jake McCarthy's role? I don't know the answer to that question yet. So, again, the big news of the day, the Diamondbacks are reportedly signing outfielder Randall Grichik. One year is $2 million. There's also a mutual option for 2025 as well. Coming up next, all-star break in the NBA. We're here. The road ahead for the Suns. If they want to make the playoffs, man, it's a long, long road. And we're going to talk about it next on Arizona Sports Saturday. Mitch and Steve on Arizona Sports Saturday. Arizona Sports, the local sports leader. We've reached the NBA All-Star break. Thank goodness, for the most part, because times have been trying for the Suns. They've been winning a lot more games lately. They've been feeling healthier, but... There is Bradley Beal dealing with a hamstring injury. He's eventually got to get surgery to address his fractured nose. Like, there's a lot of stuff with the important players that they just need rest, right? Booker's been playing a lot of minutes. Durant's been playing a lot of minutes. They had a a nice little blowout win over the Pistons the other night, so that really helped to, you know, send the guys into break early. And then, of course, you got Booker and Durant participating in all-star events this weekend. So this will be a nice little reprieve. And hopefully at the same time, Bradley Beal, having not played in that Pistons game, got a head start on his addressing his nasal fracture. Hopefully he gets that surgery done and won't have to miss any more time. And the Suns are in a really good position right now, too. If I recall correctly, they're only a couple of losses behind, Steve, the reigning champs for the fourth seed in the West. Suns are 33-22, Nuggets 36-19. That's a separation of just three games for the fourth seed. Yeah, I mean, if I were to give a report card halfway through the season, this is right about where I want the Suns to be, uh, especially when you consider where they were where, early. Is this where you expected the Suns to be? For, um, forget what we've seen. Just think about it going in, the roster that they had. I, fast forward to now. I thought it would have clicked earlier than January. But well, they it didn't the because they weren't, yeah, because they had guys missing games. So, I mean, with the situation that unfolded, this is probably the, I don't want to say the best possible scenario. The best possible scenario is you're sitting in the number one spot. Sure. You're five games ahead of everyone else. But that that's just not realistic at this point. So, really, with the context of what happened in October, November, December, yeah, this is a pretty good place to be in. You're gaining momentum as the season goes along. And as you come... You know, closer and closer to the postseason, we know this from the last couple of Suns iterations, you want to be clicking once you get to the playoffs. Right. I don't care if you're clicking in January, if it means you're not clicking come playoff time. And this is the kind of team that's developed that way, and it's been built that way. Um, Matt Ishbia, the owner of the Suns, was on with this station yesterday 
And of course, the conversation always seems to center around, is this a championship or a bust team, right? Well, Matt Ishbia kind of took it a different direction when he was with Bickley and Murata yesterday. Well, so it's not championship or bust, but it's championship. That's yeah. what we're trying to do, right? And so if we don't win the championship, we're going to try to win championship every year. Like, we're not trying to sit here and, like, you're not going to find me. You're going to get to know me for a, a long time. I'm not going to sit here and say, oh, in five years, we're going to plan to do this. <laughs> like, don't get excited about my draft picks in five years. We're going to try to win this year, and then we're going to try to win next year. And I'm smart enough to know that we're not going to win every year. I think all the fans could recognize that. But I hope they know that we're going to try our best, and it's not going to sit there and that's just not how I'm built and how we're built. And so we're going to try to win a championship. It's not bust if we don't, but I promise you, there's not a guy in that locker room. There's not a person uh, on, the, on the staff, any part of the Phoenix Suns or Mercury that doesn't say, we're trying to win the championship right now, and we're going to do everything we can in our power to do it. And hopefully they feel that the owner's doing that from his perspective, too. That probably says a lot about how they handled the deadline, too. If you think about what they did this offseason in terms of adding around Booker, Durant, and Beal, they added a lot of guys that can essentially catch and shoot threes if they're open. Grayson Allen was part of the trade with Yusuf Nurkic. He's very much a good catch and shoot three guy. That trade worked he, out so he's well. He's been stellar for them as well. I don't even think they expected him to be this good, but man, has been has it been a pleasant surprise. Eric Gordon has that pedigree as a three point shooter, of course, and more often than not, if you got Kevin Durant, Bradley Beal, and Devin Booker on the floor, he's going to find himself open with the casual double team. But then there's the other guys. Chimazi Metu, Keita Bates-Diop, Yusuf Watanabe. Well, all of them are gone now. Yeah, They've replaced that offense with defense, getting Royce O'Neal and David Roddy, and most recently, but not official, Thaddeus Young. It, it was so... It's funny because you and I have talked about this throughout the course of the of the regular season. We got to December and things started to kind of go south for the team because of the reasons we pointed out, a lot of it injuries. Mm-hmm. But we recognized that roster-wise, they doubled down on offense. We've got... Devin Booker, Kevin Durant, Bradley Beal. Those are three guys who are known for offense and not so much known for defense. Doesn't mean they can't defend, just not so much known for it. Right. But they went and hired Frank Vogel as head coach, almost as if to say, well, Frank Vogel's defensive, I don't want to say genius, but his his prowess defensively would make up for what the roster doesn't provide. He's coached some of the better defensive teams in the league. And you could look at that two different ways. You could choose to look at it as, well, Frank Vogel covers up for their rosters lacking in defense. Or you could look at it as, what the heck are you doing? You have an offensive-minded team and you hired a defensive head coach. Mm -hmm. And in December, I think we all probably looked at that as like, okay, was this the right choice? And then in January, when it starts to click, we're like, okay, we can settle down a little bit. They pivoted at the trade deadline saying we've got these four pieces that are mostly offensive weapons. Uh, Jordan Goodwin, notwithstanding, I suppose. He's more defense than offense, but... And, yeah. But he wasn't playing a lot. And mm-hmm. so they shipped those guys out, bring in Royce O'Neal, bring in big body Roddy. And all of a sudden, you can feel the shift at the trade deadline. They recognize their need, not just positionally, but offense versus defense and pivoted. Well, you know what else it does is it creates more minutes for Josh Okoge as well. Totally. Who is very much one of the hard-nosedest basketball players that we've seen on this team in a minute. Josh Okoge's defense has become so valuable but the offenses here are there. And it's funny. We were talking about this in the in our uh, station off. I, what do you even call it? The, the workroom, I guess. I don't know. The newsroom. And one of our coworkers was asking about the moves that they made. And I almost kind of wondered if they did a, an overcorrection compared to what they did this offseason at the deadline. They went from here are all these offensive guys that we put around these big offensive players 
and replaced them now with a bunch of defensive guys around these offensive players. And the scoring, while efficient, has gone down in terms of the amount of points per game they're getting. Yeah, and I think that's fair. It's something to keep an eye on. Um, but this is always going to be an offense-first team, just the way that it's constructed with right. Neil Booker and Durant. Um, I, you mentioned Grayson Allen. I mean, I think revisiting that trade, now that we're kind of at the halfway-ish point of the season, um, that worked out wonders. Not only did it eliminate the DeAndre Ayton drama of it all, and certainly he continues to face that. What was that article the other day that basically came out and said, like, yeah, there are some days where he's just not trying. And yeah. I'm like, yes, I remember that. I'm familiar. And Grayson Allen, to his credit, at age 28, you kind of are who you are in the NBA or in any sport, in any in any walk of life. Once you get to 28, like, that's kind of, you know, who you're going to be. Yep. And he took it to a next level, especially from a shooting perspective, which is what they've asked him to do. He doesn't have to do too much in this offense. And then to have the consistency of a Yusuf Nurkic, who's not the greatest player of all time, mm-hmm. I wouldn't maybe even say he's in the top 10 to 15 centers in the league, but he's consistent. And I know what I'm getting out of him every single night. I don't have to worry about effort. I don't have to worry about, you know, is he going to be complaining about playing time? Just having those two rock-solid pieces in your lineup every night, or most nights, is such a relief compared to the ups and downs and the dramatics of previous seasons. But the road's not going to get easy. And shout-out to Tankathon for the work that they do to be able to put something like this together. The strength of schedule for the teams and the games that they have remaining. Suns have 27 games left. Their strength of schedule has a 56.4% winning percentage. That is the highest in the league for teams and their opponents remaining. This includes... The Boston Celtics twice, Minnesota twice, Oklahoma City twice, Cleveland twice, the Clippers twice, the Nuggets twice. Yes, baked in there, you have the Spurs twice, Hornets once, Raptors once, Hawks once, and the Rockets three times. But again, Celtics, Timberwolves, Thunder, Cavs, Clippers, Nuggets, those are maybe six of the best teams in the NBA you still have left to face a total of 10 times down this 27-game stretch. I think for me, because they currently sit in fifth, right, in the West. 12 times, sorry. And you're three games back of the Nuggets, four games back of the Clippers, who are now in the third spot. The Timberwolves, Thunder, Clippers, and Nuggets are also trending upward. Like, they're, they're not going down. So the key here for you, with how hard the schedule is, as you point out, the key is, are you going to be able to get a home series? Can you work your way up into the top top four in the West? Can you pass Denver? I don't need them to be number one. No. But can you be number four? And I feel like we kind of had this discussion a lot last season, too. It was the same sort of up and down and, okay, can we at least get into the top half of the playoff teams in the Western Conference? Because uh, I never look at the standings and say, like, oh, that's exactly the order of how good these teams are. Mm-hmm. I don't think the Timberwolves are the best team in the West. I don't. They have the best record, though. I don't even think the Thunder are the second best team in the West. I don't. But at the end of the day, it matters for home playoff series, and I just hope that the Suns can manage to get into that top four. Coming up next, do you need a number one wide receiver to win the Super Bowl? That's next on Arizona Sports Saturday. Mitch Ferelvis, Steve Zinsmeister, Arizona Sports Saturday. Arizona Sports, the local sports leader.
Did Patrick Mahomes just prove that the Arizona Cardinals don't need to draft Marvin Harrison Jr. to win a Super Bowl? Ooh, spicy. Because you look back at this, what we're now calling the Chiefs dynasty, and I, I think that's fair. It is. It is a dynasty, period. He's won at the Super Bowl, Patrick Mahomes has, with Tyreek Hill, mm-hmm. who is one of, if not the best wide receiver in football right now. Mm-hmm. And now he's done it without him. And I think a lot of people would say this wide receiver core that he took into the Super Bowl was lackluster. Can I um, further your point? Sure. He's now done it without him twice. Exactly. In a row. Right. And I think the receiver room this year was worse than even last year. Oh, 100%. They had had Juju Smith-Schuster at least last year. Right, right, right. They had a competent Kadarius, which is a weird thing to say, by the way, a competent (laughs) Kadarius Toney last year. Sky Moore, competent last year. Like, their offense was as good as it was with Tyreek Hill. This year, not so much. But they still found a way. So it's, it's funny because I've never looked at wide receiver as the position where... I want a stud, like if I get to pick. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you and I have talked about this many times, but my philosophy is give me two t- two tackles, two pass rushers, two corners, and a good quarterback. I'll figure the rest out. I don't need good safeties. I don't need good linebackers. I don't need good D-tackles. I don't need great guards. I don't need great receivers. I can figure those out. And clearly some teams do when they have all those other pieces. Right. Um, but... And we know this in Arizona, having a stud wide receiver like a Larry Fitzgerald or a DeAndre Hopkins goes a long way and can win you a game in a situation where if you didn't have that guy, maybe you don't win the game. And so if your goal is to win a Super Bowl, which all teams, that is their objective, and if that's what the Cardinals are trying to put together, they're in dire need of wide receiver help. Hollywood Brown, who has proven to not be a one anyway, in my opinion, He's a free agent, so he might not even be back. Michael Wilson, albeit a decent enough rookie, is not a number one. Mm-hmm. And so you're at this pivot point where you got to decide, okay, we got the fourth pick in the draft. We can maybe get the best player on the board, which is Marvin Harrison Jr., who by all accounts is going to be a number one wide out. But do we need him in order to win the Super Bowl? Or would we rather seek out other pieces? I... <laughs> See, my argument with the whole thing is that you don't need a number one receiver if your quarterback is Patrick Mahomes. Yeah. You don't need a number one receiver if your defense is playing lights out for most of the game. You don't need a number one receiver if you can still find ways to move the ball offensively. And if I'm thinking about this example of the Chiefs doing it without a number one receiver or really a truly good receiver at all, um, they do have a truly, really good receiver, actually. He just doesn't play wide receiver. He plays tight end. Travis Kelsey. They have a really solid running attack led by a seventh-round pick who had had nothing to lose but to try his damnedest. And so far, he's been a key cog in their offense, in Isaiah Pacheco. I think the argument of needing a number one wide receiver or not completely depends on the other 52. And I think for the Chiefs, they were very comfortable with sacrificing that one position 
because of the other 52 that they had. And Kelsey in particular. But most important, no, I would say most importantly because Patrick Mahomes. Okay, fair enough. I think that if you have that kind of guy on your team, it doesn't matter who you have around him. He will find ways to make it work. Example, how many guys were around Devontae Adams for Green Bay when Aaron Rodgers was the quarterback there? How many guys around him? Yeah. And how many years have we always seen the reporting and the complaining about Rodgers doesn't have enough receiver help? And then they trade Devontae Adams away and, oh, they still didn't get him any receiver help. And then he won the MVP anyway. Some guys elevate all the people around them and some guys need to be elevated by good players around them. So is Kyler Murray the kind of guy that can elevate the others around him? Great question. Or does he need to benefit from having a stud wide receiver that he can throw to? Now, obviously, everybody would love to have both. You want to have a good quarterback and a great person to throw to. Mm -hmm. That would be ideal. There's there's no doubt about that. But if we're picking and choosing and trying to evaluate where the Cardinals are at, you have a ton of holes. Because let's be honest, the Cardinals have about the exact opposite of a roster of the Kansas City Chiefs. They have more questions to answer than answers. And so... You're in this situation where during a rebuild, and let's be honest, this is kind of what that is, do you go and draft the number one wide receiver at number four, or could you move down, pick up a couple extra picks the way they did last year, and then try to build around other things and build up that 52 that you talked about? Well, so this conversation stems from a tweet from Albert Breers with CBS, if I'm not mistaken, with talk ramping up on the free agent and draft receivers. And teams is a need for a true number one. I think it is at least interesting that Patrick Mahomes won back-to-back Super Bowls in his first two years after the Tyree Kill trade. It caused a little bit of a stir, so he went on to quote and saying, people are taking this the wrong way, obviously. Having weapons for your QB is important, but if you look at the four teams there at the end, their builds investment start on the lines of scrimmage. Not an opinion, just a fact. Sure. Chris Jones, one of the biggest game wreckers in the game, would you say? Uh Uh-huh. Javon Hargrave, didn't he get a ton of money in the offseason from San Francisco? Aiden Hutchinson, isn't he a menace off the edge for Detroit? And then the Baltimore Ravens have maybe the best defense that we've seen in the longest time in terms of DVOA, which is a stat that quantifies just how good your defense is in terms of how good you are as a team. Yeah, I think Albert Breer is making a pretty strong argument that if you build it the traditional way, per se... You're going to find yourself in the final four. Okay, so now look at the Cardinals roster and look at them in the trenches. How many of their guys do you feel that way about? The Uh, way you feel about Hargrave, Jones, Paris Johnson. Fair. One guy. Out of at least nine. And that says a lot, right? So does that answer your question of should you be spending high draft capital on a wide receiver? Or trying to fill other gaps in your well, roster. Well, here's the thing. I think you can stay in four and still take one of the best guys for the line. Joe Alt, solid guy that you could draft at the top. Olufushanu, solid guy that could help with the offensive line. And then there's even uh, out of Oregon State, Fuaga is a really solid guy that they could help with the O-line. Okay, you just named three guys that you'd be comfortable with at four, right? I think mostly Alt or Fushanu. But Fuaga can make an argument. I just don't know if he's four. Now, imagine you move back three or four spots, pick up an extra first-round pick, Mm -hmm. and still get one of those guys. Find a quarterback needy team that's that's willing to expend extra. Uh This is what they're talking about in the front office right now, is do we need that wide receiver? 
And we don't even know that we can get him at four, by the way. He might not even be there. But do we need that? Or do we need to fill out the other 52 and get better in the trenches and build from there? Because that's how other championship teams have done it. I'll do this exercise as well. Okay. Just running through some of the recent Super Bowl winning teams and whether or not they had a true number one wide receiver. Kansas City the last two years have not. But they have Travis Kelsey. That's a little different. The Rams. Cooper Cup. Obvious number one. Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Mike Evans. Mike Evans. Yeah. Antonio Brown on that team. They had Rob Gronkowski. Yeah, they had guys. Yeah. Kansas City. Uh, that would have been the Tyreek Hill. Yes. New England Patriots over the Rams. Edelman? Gronk, too. Wasn't, yeah, Gronk was still. Yeah, but if the exercise is wide receivers, we, yeah, we have an understanding of really good tight and ends. Edelman counts as a, as a true number one. He in won the mind. MVP in that game. Yeah. Uh, Philadelphia Eagles over the Patriots. I'll be honest, I don't remember that Eagles team that well. Alshon Jeffrey, maybe? I don't remember. I don't Nick Foles was their quarterback. I remember that. Yeah, Nick Foles caught a touchdown. <laughs> <laughs> Does that count as a number one wide receiver? I don't know. I, I guess my point is, like, it is kind of hit or miss. Like, you don't necessarily have to have a true number one wideout. Is it helpful? Yeah, but most of these teams that win the Super Bowl have multiple really good options, not just one. So I asked you... Um, if Kyler Murray is a guy that can elevate others or does he need to be elevated? And I don't want to throw this out per se, but Trey McBride exploded when Kyler Murray returned from injury. Like absolutely exploded. Like to the level that maybe he's a top five tight end fantasy wise next year. Maybe a top 10 tight end in the league. Can I counter, next year? Can I counter that with another statement? Okay. Trey McBride exploded when Zach Ertz got let go. And a lot of that has to do with playing time. Obviously, but I think that he kind of had the shackles uh, cut off, if, if sure. so to speak. Sure, but who was his quarterback? It, sure, he gets Kyler he Murray wasn't, back. He wasn't doing it. all this when Josh Dobbs was still throwing. I get it. They scored zero points in Clayton Toon's one and only start. It's kind of a two, like two separate things that happened almost simultaneously. And yeah. which one do you give credit to? But also, Kyler coming off of the injury that he was. I imagine that there's a certain safety net in your tight end, rookie or not. Like, you know, he didn't have a lot of other key options. So for him to kind of fall back on Trey McBride as much as he did, I, I think, yeah, it's a great point. But Trey McBride's not a number one. so But I, he could be. Like, he's going in the direction of the mold of the next Gronk or the next Kelsey, right? That's what it feels like to me. Interesting. Coming up next... A brand new sports documentary that could give The Last Dance a run for its money. And we're talking to the guy who's responsible for creating it. Coming up next on Arizona Sports Saturday. Mitch and Steve on Arizona Sports Saturday. Arizona Sports, the local sports leader. Mitch and Steve back on Arizona Sports Saturday. Mitch, do you remember when uh, The Last Dance came out, that documentary about the Chicago Bulls a few years ago? It was 2020, summer of. And like the whole world, probably because of partly because of COVID, but the yeah. whole world just surrounded this and it was like the biggest thing in entertainment. A story we all knew, but we just couldn't get enough of it. Well, I'm here to tell you that there's a new documentary series out on Apple TV. It's called The Dynasty and it covers the New England Patriots which is almost kind of like two separate dynasties in one almost. Right. And I watched the first two episodes. They're coming out in two episode increments over the next couple of weeks. And we've got the guy who wrote the story it's about 
and also is an executive producer on the actual documentary. Jeff Benedict joins us now. Jeff, hey, it's Steve and Mitch. Thanks so much for giving us some of your time today. Hi, Steve. Hi, Mitch. Uh, pleasure to be on with you. Oh, no, we're happy to have you on the show. Um, so I watched the first two episodes. They're coming out incrementally. But basically, uh, the whole dynasty starts with the story about Drew Bledsoe being replaced and Wally pipped by Tom Brady. That's that's <laughs> kind of the first episode. Sorry to spoil anything for anyone who hasn't seen it. And, you know, obviously the story progresses from there. Uh, you know what I love about your documentary is that you have literally everyone in it. I mean, you've got the big three. You've got Belichick, Brady, Kraft, but you've got even some of the the minor role players in some of this that just tell the story. Was there anybody you didn't get in this documentary? Well, yeah, that's a good question. Um, You know, this thing really grew out of a a book project that I started back in 18, and I was really fortunate for, for the book. I spent almost, you know, it was two plus years inside the organization. Those happened to be Tom Brady's last two years in new england that's when i was with the team writing the book and chronicling that and and had access to you know most of all those players and a lot of past players so when we pivoted to do the docuseries um a lot of the guys in the docuseries had been interviewed for the book and the, the benefit of that is you get a certain level of you know intimacy and honesty from people when you know when you interview them for a book but if you treat them right and you don't take things out of context and you're sort of respectful of the trust relationship, if you get the chance to do a documentary afterwards based on the book, you can actually go, they'll go a lot further with you. And we definitely were beneficiaries of that in this case. And I think that uh, the my partner on this was Matt Hamachek, the director, who also directed the, the Tiger Woods film for HBO it was based on a book I did with Armin Katayan and Matt's a great storyteller. And, um, and he's also a very good interviewer. He's a good conversationalist and a documentary that's important. So we were really, I don't want to say lucky. We, we were just fortunate to have those bedrock relationships and the guys really did go to the well for the film. It's one of those stories that obviously is tale as old as time in this generation. And for someone that is, you know, for me, age of 28, this level of Patriots dominance is basically all that I remember, right? Like before the times, there was not a lot of great things happening with the Patriots. I think just a couple of Super Bowl visits. I want to ask you, at what point did you know or did you kind of lead the charge of trying to get this adapted into a docuseries? Oh, definitely. I mean, when I when I um, when I started the book, meaning not the writing, but the research part, when I was with the team and following them through um 18 and 19 before i actually started putting pen to paper i i was already thinking about how to turn it into a docuseries or or a movie and um and so over the next year or so i actually started working on that process and as soon as i finished writing and the book was in production i pivoted to the series and what would it take to to make that happen and a lot of that hinged on the Patriots because I had been given access to the team in order to do the book. And the only way a documentary was going to be made is if, if the team cooperated and participated. And that's why I was saying that relationship with the team was so critical, but I didn't want to just sell it to a a streamer or a production company. I actually wanted to be involved in every little bit of it um, because this, this book and this story is a little more dear, near and dear to my heart than, than some of the other books that I've written. 
Talking to Jeff Benedict, author and executive producer of The Dynasty. You can go watch the first two episodes on Apple TV+. Plus. Uh, and I got to tell you, from watching the first two episodes, I love some of the characters in this story who aren't the big ones. Obviously, it's fascinating to hear Brady and Belichick and Kraft, but I loved Scott Pioli and Ernie Adams hearing from some of the guys that maybe the general sports fan doesn't necessarily know what their role was, but they had Belichick's ear in all of this. Was there a minor character in this story that as you were researching this project, you you came to the conclusion that, wow, I didn't realize that that person played such a significant role in this dynasty? Well, Ernie Adams, for sure. Um, and not to diminish Scott Pioli, because Scott was uh, was with Bill Belichick uh, for years before he got to New England. And then he was there for the critical foundational years of the dynasty with Bill but Ernie Adams is like, um, you know, the other half of Bill's brain. I mean, the two of them uh, went to school together. They've been together for most of their careers, and they think alike. And But Ernie really never had any spotlight. Um, that spotlight always went to Bill, and that's kind of the way it is in, in the business. But behind that was was this guy who had an amazing role in all this. And I think you know, to the credit of um, of Matt Hamachek, who he's the one who developed the rapport with Ernie and the relationship with Ernie um, in the interviewing process that, that really got Ernie to open up because Ernie's never done that before, ever. And um, I think he is, you know, he's one of the bright stars in the documentary for sure. I was going through your website and I saw one of the first things you see is a video. I believe it's you ringing the NASDAQ bell as part of promoting this uh, piece. And then at the, <laughs> I know, right? And then at the same time, I'm getting the sense that just from talking with you, you are a Patriots fan. Is that fair to say? Like this was a passion project for you? So it, that's a great question. Um, I grew up, I, I live in Connecticut, in New England, and I've, I'm born and raised here, lived here, you know, I spent my life here. But I grew up a Miami Dolphins fan. Oh, wow. um, as did a lot of kids in my age bracket, I'm 57. And, you know, when I was six, seven years old and just started watching NFL football, Miami had the perfect season and uh, beat the Redskins in the Super Bowl. And a lot of kids my age glommed onto the Dolphins and, um, and New England stunk back then. Like there, there was nobody in my school that rooted for the Patriots, even though they were like the hometown team. <laughs> And it's because they were so terrible. Um, so that was my upbringing. But I will tell you that, you know, as I got older, it, I became an adult and a journalist and a writer. I I didn't really follow the Dolphins that much anymore. didn't really have a, a team. And I got really interested in the Brady, Belichick, Kraft era Patriots because of their um, – I just saw what we were watching history unfold, and it was unusual and uh, because of how long the dynasty ran. And so – um, I became what I would say a an admirer of what they'd accomplished. And that's what I was when I went into the project. We're lucky enough to be talking with Jeff Benedict, the creator of The Dynasty. You can go check it out on Apple TV+. Plus. Um, you've covered a lot of big sports stories, obviously the Patriots. Uh, we talked a little bit about Tiger Woods. In your opinion, what other big sports story do you think deserves the documentary adaptation treatment? Whether it's you or someone else that chooses to do it, what other big story do you think deserves that? You know, to be if I'm being really honest, um, there's not that many. Uh, I think that 
It, it's easier for me to talk, like if you start with books, because I'm first and foremost, that's what I am, a writer, right? And um, and I've done um, Steve Young's biography, and then I, because he asked me to, and it was his autobio, but then I went on and did Tiger Woods' bio with Armin Kittay, and I did LeBron James, and I did the Dynasty. And to me, Tiger, LeBron, Brady are the three most dominant male athletes that America has produced in the 21st century. And, um, and then I don't think there's anybody else close to those three. Now I'm not talking about, if you go to the female side, that's a different conversation, but if you're talking about male athletes, it's those three guys. And, um, so if I were, if you were asking me that question about books, I'd say, well, I'm done because there, there really isn't anybody in my mind who's left on that side. And I think if you, so if you pivot to documentary films, everybody's signing up to make films. Now the Cowboys are going to do one. The Celtics are going to do one. The Red Sox are going to, you know, everybody's doing one. I think that it, when you do that, you dilute and probably diminish the, you know, the quality because the, mm-hmm. let's face it, the last dance set a standard and it was a very high standard, a, a super high bar. And one of the reasons the bar is so high with the last dance is because of who's at the core of it, arguably the greatest basketball player of all time. And, and a dynastic run that included six championships in a decade. And they had 10 parts and they had access. So they had all the ingredients for something that's worthy of asking you to tune in for 10 hours of television. It's a lot of time. And I don't think there's really many stories like that. If you're talking about like the modern era, I'm not saying like that the DiMaggio mantle era Yankees wouldn't deserve the treatment or the Bill Russell era Celtics that could deserve the treatment. Um, maybe the, the eighties 49ers. But if you're talking about like right now, like say from, you know, 2000 forward, I don't know that there's really another team out there that is really ready for a, a 10 part documentary. And if I was going to look at in the sports genre for a, a film that I'd really want to watch, it would probably be the life of Andre Agassi. And I'd say that because if you look at his book open, it's probably one of the best sports books, sports bios that was ever written. And it's because he was so open and uh, most athletes are not. And so um, I would think that one, if it ever got made into a film, I don't know if it would be 10 parts, but it would be a hell of a documentary. Well, I'll tell you, this is a hell of a documentary, or at least I've seen the first two episodes. And if it's going the direction I think it's going, everyone's going to enjoy it. It's called The Dynasty, all about the New England Patriots. It's on Apple TV+. Plus. We've been talking with Jeff Benedict, the author and executive producer. Jeff, thanks so much for your time, man. The documentary is great. I can't wait to watch the rest of it. Thanks, Jeff. Thank you, guys. Privilege. Awesome. Jeff Benedict joining us. Uh, The Dynasty, Apple TV Plus. You're going to want to go check that out. First episode is the Drew Bledsoe episode is what I'm calling it. Where the Wally Pip, we're all familiar. And then episode two, (laughs) uh, I'll just say this, the tuck rule. Ooh. So keep that in mind. So Charles Woodson makes a guest appearance. You're going to want to go check it out for yourself. Uh, Coming up next... We're going to actually check in at spring training, which just started in the last couple of days. We're going to take you out live to talk a little bit about the Diamondbacks, who signed a new player today. That's next on Arizona Sports Saturday.